Thank you, Spate. Just a couple of words before we get started in our text this morning. One is, um, I said it in the first hour and want to say it again, we have been blessed um, with the, the talent and uh, not only just the talent, but the heart of uh, some of our people who lead us in worship, and Eric Rowell is one of those, and Eric, this was his last Sunday here, he's going off to seminary, so be in prayer for him, it has just been a blessing to see uh, what God has done in, in his life, and it's really neat um, as a pastor to see uh, some of these young folks uh, following a call to the Lord and going and getting further education, so he and Dylan are both uh, in that camp. Um, the other thing that I just want to mention, um, you'll re, you will be, if you have children, you'll be receiving an email or text message from Ruby. The elders are considering uh, potentially opening up uh, the nursery on Sunday mornings. And so uh, Ruby will be sending you an email, um, just garnering feedback of, uh, from you. So, so be looking for that. I do want to say along those lines um, uh, uh, that... You know, we, we have not, you know, the, for a couple of weeks, I guess, we kind of closed the church. The church is not closed, and if, you, um, if you're wanting to come and uh, if you're worried about a, a young child uh, squealing uh, in the service, it's okay. Um, my buddy was here this morning. Uh, he knows who he is, um, and he was great. Uh, in fact, when I heard him squeal, I just considered that an amen and just kept going longer. Um, and so we, we love having our children here. We love having them in the service with us. And so we just don't want any hindrances um, stopping you from coming and being with us if you would like to do that. Um, and lastly, I should probably mention this since Spate prayed for it. Um, uh, my son did eat lunch with someone who uh, he found out, we found out Friday evening uh, late who had tested positive for COVID. And it just so happened that... Uh, uh, at Macaulay, they are testing all the boys, and so his test happened to be yesterday. So we're praying that that comes back negative, uh, but that is why I am entering and exiting from this door and not stopping to uh, fellowship with any of you all, and why I'm not touching the microphone. Uh, I did touch Spate's mouth earlier. No, I didn't. Um, uh, but I'm, so I'm trying, to, uh, trying to, uh, to, to do my part as well. So... Uh, if you have your Bible, if you will open to the book of 1 Peter, hopefully you're already there, and we are in chapter 4, and we are continuing on um, from last week, and if you were here with us last week, or if you've been listening over the uh, broadcast last week, um, I tried to make a distinction uh, through the text of the difference between um, just being a, a, a Christ follower, or, or being a Christ follower, and being kind of a cultural Christian, and that when we're truly following Christ, as Peter over and over calls us to in this letter, when we're following Christ, we're not surprised when trials and temptations or, or when trials or tribulations come our way. We're not surprised by that. And last week tried to make a case for that biblically. And not only are we not surprised, but we rejoice as we suffer as we suffer for being a Christian, we rejoice in that. And uh, I hope one of the things that was brought to your mind that you were able to kind of think through is that this is strange. 
You know, if we are living according to this world, the whole idea of suffering followed by rejoicing is is countercultural. And in this is what it means in many ways. It's the implication of being a Christ follower. This week, I want to use a little bit different language and you'll see why I'm wanting to use this language. This week, you'll hear me reference a lot uh, the whole idea that was uh, first, uh, I think, brought into our uh, consciousness long, long time ago by an old dead guy named Augustine when he wrote about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And that as God um, sent Christ into this world and as Christ invaded this world, that as believers, we are living in the world, but we're called not to be of the world. And so we're always standing in this odd position of living amongst and in the kingdom of man. But our true hope, our true identity, our true citizenship is as men and women of the kingdom of God. And so as we look at this text this morning, I think it's helpful to have those those ideas in mind. Because we're going to see that. The difference between the the forces that pull us uh, from the kingdom of man, uh, from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of man, are wrong. That this world is not how it should be. That this world is marred by sin. And so every institution, every um, thing that man has created is not like it should be. And that we always, as Christians, should feel the two realities of this world and the kingdom of God. And I think, in fact, as we look at the book of 1 Peter, he is over and over, he just doesn't use this language, but he's over and over and over again pointing us to the reality of the kingdom of God and that this is what we should be living for and that this world, this world that we live in is disordered. And I want us, I want that to really sink in our, our minds, and I want us to take note of that, and this is something that has to always be before us, that this world is disordered. So I want to begin this, this morning, kind of a continuation, but I, I think you'll see um, with a different emphasis, and so I want to read starting in verse 12, and then stop in verse 14, and begin to point some things out to you. But it says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised when when trials come. Don't be surprised when persecutions come. But to the degree that you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, continuously rejoice so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I want to say a couple things as we look at verse 14. Notice the word here, if you are reviled. If you are reviled. This word revile, uh, just like it brings in English. Uh, it tells us that if you're slandered, if you're looked down upon, if you are maligned is another word we have seen from our text. And, and, and what this calls to mind 
um, as we read this, as Peter is writing, certainly if there were more harsh um, persecutions that were happening at this time, if you're killed, if you're beaten, uh, you know, if people were being killed and were being beaten, then Peter would have suggested that. At this time, the persecutions that are happening are people are being reviled. People are being persecuted at a, at, at a lower level. Another word here that I would use, and I think it's a big deal um, to maybe use this word and to think about this word, especially within the culture in which this letter was embedded and it was brought to us. If you are shamed is another way I think that we could look at this. If you are shamed for the name of Christ. This idea of being reviled or being shamed was a big deal in this culture. In fact, in this culture, one's standing, not only your standing per se, but the standing of your family and the people around you had everything to do with how you were seen. And so if you were seen as ashamed or reviled, you were placed in a, in a lower rung of society. You were thought of in a, in a lower way. To be shamed was to be outcast. And those associated with you would be outcast as well. And so what I want you to notice with that in mind, what Peter is telling his readers, he's saying if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. He's making a distinction here. The world, the kingdom of man, says that you are reviled for the name of Christ, But God says you are blessed. And what you're going to see this morning is I think Peter is the Holy Spirit through Peter is blowing up this whole idea of of the the kingdom of man and the rules in which people are operating. And so he's 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 driving a stake in the ground and saying the world says that you should be reviled, you should be shamed. But God says you are blessed. In the last few weeks and months, one of the things that we have seen Peter as he's writing this letter, Peter often talks about future rewards as reason for obedience. And, and that's absolutely correct. Peter does this over and over and over again. He talks about future rewards. In fact, he starts the letter by talking about an inheritance that is being kept for us. But what we see in this text, what we see in this verse, is that Peter is giving us, is showing us in this verse Um, A reason that we are blessed that is in the here and now, not only to us, but to his readers as well. Notice it says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you currently. This is a big deal. The spirit of God and glory rests on you. You are blessed. This is your reality. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, particularly with prophecy, know that the the prophets spoke of a day when the Spirit of God would rest within its people. And we know that Jesus, um, Jesus, as he was preparing to leave, he said that it's good for you that I go because there is one coming. The Spirit of God is coming. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper And I am with you, but the Spirit of God will be inside you, will indwell you. And this shows us 
that we are living in a new age. We're living in this new age, and this is marked by the Holy Spirit coming. And in this new age, we are already a part of the kingdom of heaven. We are already a part of the kingdom of God, but we are not yet home as we live in the kingdom of man. But Jesus tells us, lo, I am with you always. I am not leaving you as orphans. I am giving you my spirit. And God's spirit in us comforts us, leads us, teaches us, guides us, convicts us where necessary, encourages us. And and there's another aspect to this as well that I think, notice it's it's kind of an odd phrasing here. It, It says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I think what Peter was also trying to say is that the other thing that the Spirit of God does in us is that He gives us a taste of the glory that is going to be revealed to us as we spend eternity with God. And this whole idea of glory is this Shekinah glory in the Old Testament that was beyond any kind of understanding or comprehension. It was just great and wonderful. And we know that when we are in the presence of God that we will experience that. And what Peter is telling us is that that is your experience now as the Spirit of God indwells you. You get a taste of what's to come. And particularly, those who are reviled, those who are reviled um, have an unusual fullness or filling of this spirit that blesses and encourages us and strengthens as we are going through times of persecution over and over and over again. As I talk with people who are going through difficult times and suffering, particularly if you read stories of persecuted Christians, you will you will it'll just read off the page this idea of the indwelling of the spirit and these just supernatural things happen, this comfort, this peace, this rest, uh, uh, Jesus becoming sweeter in the days of persecution, not foreign. Uh, The words of God being brought to mind. There are some stories that I've read where the Bibles are taken from Christians, and yet as they sit in, in, in places where they are persecuted, the words of God just keep pouring into their minds in these interactions as the Spirit does that inside of them. And so Peter is telling his readers this. He's telling him, blessed are you when you're reviled because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and the Holy Spirit is comforting you. So the world in these situations are saying that we are reviled. But God says, no, 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 you're not reviled. You are blessed. And notice in verse 15, Peter, um, I don't think he's making a detour here. um, But notice what Peter says. He says, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. The whole idea here is this, is that if, if you were to, to, to go out and to, to rob someone, if you were to, to go to Pruitt's after the service and uh, try to get your meal for free and the police were to come and to take you away, uh, and you were to go spend a little bit of time in jail, you probably don't go to jail for that, but if you were to spend some time in jail for that, this is not you suffering for Christ. Right. 
That is you suffering the consequences of your actions. Now, let's be careful. Does that mean that if you are suffering the consequences of your actions, that God doesn't love you in that moment, direct you in that moment, teach you in that moment, uh, draw near to you in that moment? Absolutely, God does all those things, right? But this particular text, what it's talking about is that it's talking about the type of suffering in which God calls Blessed, and that is the type of suffering that comes when you are reviled for his name. For his name. And I don't think that what was going on in Asia Minor was that there were a lot of Christians that were running around murdering people or stealing from people. I think Peter is just drawing this distinction about shame and and blessedness, shame, and bringing glory to God. And so the point that he is making is he wants us, he wants his reader to live in such a way that the only shame that they bring from the world is the shame that comes from following Christ. And if that's the shame you're bringing, you are blessed and God is honored. Let me ask you some questions. Was Christ accused? Was Christ jailed? Was Christ maligned? Was Christ slandered? Think about this. Why was Christ hung between two criminals? Why was Christ stripped naked? From... The world's perspective, the reason that Christ was treated this way was because the world was shaming him for who he claimed to be. And the picture that is there is of one of someone being reviled and shamed. And why was Christ treated this way? Because he did the will of his father. And what was God's reaction to his son's perfect obedience, even to the point of cross? He made him heir over all things. Blessed are you. Let's keep going. You'll see this again in this verse. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, as the world would say that he should be shamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. Now, it's interesting here. Again, uh, we need to know the culture and we need to know the setting. For us, uh, the word Christian is a very normal word that we toss around and use all the time, right? In this day and age, the word Christian was not a good term. In fact, it was used as a derogatory term. We only see this word three times in the New Testament, one of them being here. The other two times were in the book of Acts. And these were outsiders looking in on the way, on people who were following Jesus and using this term in a derogatory way, calling them Christians. Notice again what Peter is doing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is saying the world may look and call you a Christ follower and say that you should and cause you to suffer and bring shame upon you. But don't be ashamed. 
Don't be ashamed at what the world comes and puts on you, but rather glorify God in this name that you have been counted worthy to carry the message and the name of Jesus Christ. Peter turns this on its head and says, what the world shames, God gets glory from. God gets glory from. In other words, what God is doing, what the Spirit is doing through Peter in this writing is for Christians, he is recalibrating our minds. So that he is calling us to see the world as God sees the world and no longer to see the world and to act and be influenced by the way that the world sees itself. And this is huge. And so the question that naturally comes to our mind and that I think Peter picks up right here in verse 17 is this. Believers... In the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, whose judgment, whose judgment are you going to care most about? Notice this. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, um. We've got to unpack this a little bit um, because some of you may be sitting here saying, oh, my goodness, like judgment, like this is scary stuff. And some of you may have heard this verse, I think, misquoted uh, and used in a, in a wrong way. And so I want to unpack it and, uh, and you can judge for yourself, but to see how I think this is um, What is going on here? The first thing that I want you to notice is the words here with the household of God. Now, this word, the root for this word household has been used elsewhere in first Peter. And let's go back to chapter two just very quickly. In chapter two, and I want to start uh, with verse one and go through verse five. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So he is talking to believers here and he is telling you put away all this and long for something else, long for something else if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And then notice verse four and coming to him. As to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And then notice these words, you also. (laughs) This is magnificent. You also as living stones are what are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is being said here, these, this word for household is being used here, that believers, those who have put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, have come to Christ and you are seen as an acceptable, acceptable sacrifice and that it's, it's on that that God is building a house. Notice again, This idea in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And so what we see is that this household that has been built has been built of believers. And so what you're saying is, okay, so, all right, Lewis, that doesn't escape the judgment of God portion. So I see that this household is of believers. And so then I want you to look in this word. This word for judgment uh, in the Greek is is not the word that's used for uh, that's used normally for like coming doom, condemnation type of judgment. This word in the Greek actually means just plainly the actions of a judge. So, so what I want to say, the difference is this. Um, when, when some of you who, who practice law, I know we've got at least one in here today who practices law. Uh, when you go before a judge, you're looking for a judgment. It doesn't mean that that judgment is always bad. It can be very favorable to you. <laughs> that the judge hears the facts and then pr- pronounces a judgment. So it's not this this. This thing to where it's condemnation. An example of this that I used earlier, uh, and it's it's probably a silly example and a bad metaphor, but um, it, it's what it's what brought was brought to my mind is this: um, I have coached now for about eight or nine years a, a in the flag football league up here, and I gave one of our guys a hard time this morning, and I said I wouldn't mention his name over air that we beat them in the championship last year, but uh, we'll talk about that again later. However. What happens on Champions Day is that all the different age groups play and they play the championships. It's the end of a tournament. And that later that evening, you go to the town hall gym and it is loud, it's noisy, you can't hear a thing that's going on. But what they do is that they give the trophies, uh, they, they, they give the trophies to the champions and the, the commissioner of the league proclaims his judgment. The, uh, this team won first place and this team won second place. Now, what is going on in that moment is not the actual judgment. What is going on in that moment is a proclamation of, of what has happened. And one of the things that I, I said earlier, and I love about this, especially with this metaphor, is that particularly for the teams that win, you know, uh, for the younger ages, they may have played early in the day, and those kids come in five or six hours later, and they still have their cleats on, and there's still face paint and they're nasty and stinky and they're just rejoicing in this victory that they have won. And in some ways, when I look at this pronouncement this, of this judgment, what I see is these Christians coming in battered. Coming in with the, with the scars of some of the persecution. And God saying, you're a champion. You belong to me. As we read this text. It says that it begins with us first. But a lot of commentators think that it actually should read it begins from us. And the idea here, much like Jesus says in the book of Matthew, when he is separating the sheep from the goats, That God is coming first to His house and saying, these are my people. And He's going from there and pronouncing judgment on the world. 
Does that make sense? And if we had a lot more time over and over again, this book is about assurance of salvation. This book is about who you are in Christ. And he's not saying here, oh, be careful. He's again encouraging these believers to stand and to stand firm. So I think what is going on here, and I think it is, I feel like it's pretty clear as he's talking about judgment here, he's talking about the last day. And he's saying that he's starting with the house of God, the house that he has built, the house that his son came and secured, and that those who are following him, and he's saying, for you, for you, you are accepted, you are my children. And this is the judgment that is upon you. But notice, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And again, I do not think this is one of those instances where the biblical writer has thumbing his nose at non-believers. I think there's a sense of sobriety that he wants his readers to hear. And that there's this, there's this encouragement, what the world calls shame, God calls blessed. What the world calls dishonorable, God will come and judge and to build you up. And, what the, he will, and, and you will be accepted, you are accepted, and you will be lifted up and the world will be judged. And I think what he's saying is that, reader, you are here to be a light in this world so that people don't have to face this judgment of God. I've said it over and over again to you. If it were any other way, the minute that you were saved, God would have taken you out of the world. It would have been this rapture of however it happened. For me, it was saying a prayer that my dad led me through and we would have opened our eyes and boom, both gone. But there's a reason that you were left here in this world and that is for the world to know the one, the one. Who came to take away their sins. And that's why we must suffer more shame. From the world. Is because we are not ashamed of the gospel of God. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God to salvation. There's so much more to say here. Look at verse 18. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now, this is a quote from the book of Proverbs. And I think what the the reason this is added here is because what Peter is saying is that he is talking about he's referencing back to verse 12 and, and all the other times in this book where he talks about the fiery trials. Referencing back to chapter one, when the about the suffering that that comes and what he's saying to you believers is that, look, hold on, I know that it's difficult. I know that it's difficult. And, and just think about it this way. If it's, if it's difficult for you here, know how much more difficult it will be for those who are not one of me. If we go back to the book of Proverbs, and I just want to read a couple of verses here. The quote is from, Proverbs chapter 11, the quote is from verse uh, uh, 31, but I want to read just a couple of other verses, starting in verse 20. 
The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. But the blameless in their walk are His delight. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. I've never seen that as the, like, women's ministry life verse. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. That this is a judgment that is to come. And that God says, I know that it's difficult. I know that there's pain. I know that living in this world is difficult. I have given you my spirit to encourage you. And I am giving you this proclamation to hold on. Hold on. that You are mine and you are part of my kingdom. Verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I love this verse. Again, we see the difference in how the world, the kingdom of man, looks at us, should look at us, and, or, or does look at us, and how God looks at us. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I first want to look at this word, entrust. It means to give something to someone for safekeeping or to make a deposit would be uh, in our terms. This word is used uh, two other times in the New Testament. It's used in this letter, and I want you to see it in chapter 2, verse 23. Talking about Jesus, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept, here's the word, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That we see Jesus as he was being persecuted, as he was experiencing great suffering, he didn't retaliate. He didn't do what maybe the world thinks that he should have done to stand up and to prove that he was not worthy of worldly shame. Instead of that, he entrusted himself to God. The other time this word is used is in the book of Luke when Jesus was on the cross and he says, into your hands, here's the word, I entrust my spirit. I love it here that Peter uses this word. And hopefully it calls to mind these things. That those who are suffering according to God's will. Are entrusting their souls to the faithful creator. I do want to look at how he describes God here. First, he describes him as faithful. And what we need to know and what we need to bank on as we sang this morning that God is a faithful God. God is a promise keeping God. And in my own Bible reading, I'm, uh, I'm in the book of Romans. And I just want to 
give you just a couple of promises from the book of Romans that we, that we all know, but just to remind you of in, in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. God is faithful. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will suffer no condemnation because you are His. In verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That God is a promise keeper. That though we may suffer now, it is not even worth to compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And then in 37, 38, and 39, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God is faithful to His promises. The other thing that's interesting here, and these, uh, when speaking of God in the New Testament, it's not often uh, that, that this word is used, Creator. And in Peter, in using this word, what he's driving home is the sovereignty of God. That God is faithful and that God is in control so that he wants his reader to know that there's no calamity, there's no hardship that comes to you because of suffering that doesn't pass through the hands of our Father and it is for your good. It is conforming you to the image of His Son and that God cares and that He loves you and that you are not alone. You have not been left in the middle of this. Entrust yourself to Him. It's the safest place that we can be. The whole idea of this passage, the whole idea of this book is that God is on the throne and He is at work in and around and amongst you. It's interesting um, that as we look at these verses and as we look at Peter turn uh, the, the earthly worldview kind of on its head. You know, I'm reminded of Paul. Often Paul says things in his letters like, um, I thank the Lord for you that you didn't abandon me in my chains. I thank the Lord for you that even though I was in chains, that you, were, you ministered to me. You weren't, what, ashamed of me. This speaks to this culture and the norm in this culture is that if you were maligned, if you were in chains, if you were in prison, that you were often abandoned because of the the cultural pressures and the cultural norms. And what we see through this text is that God turns this upside down and says this world is marred by sin. And what this world may think is right. The worldview present in that day of avoiding shame, avoiding ridicule, avoiding persecution so that you may look a certain way in the eyes of the world. The gospel says. You're not of that world. And there's something glorious. Glorious when the world maligns you for the sake of my name. I am with you. I am in it now. Lastly, lastly, notice that it tells us how we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God, there is a will of God in this world, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what 
is right. And as I said in the earlier service, um, there have been some thoughts just percolating in me, and this could be a whole sermon, but we're not going to we're not going to stay here for another hour. But notice what it says, that we entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right, in doing what is according to his will. And and don't skip over this too quickly. How do you define what is right? And the conviction that I have. Is that in this world that's marred by sin. Far too often, we're letting the world tell us what is right and what is wrong. And that we've bought into a worldview at times that I think can even lead us into sin. And so how do we know what is right? It's the will of God. It is conforming ourselves to Christ. It is allowing the Holy Spirit to take this word, illuminate it in our hearts and minds so so that we, even if we're persecuted for it, are being changed. Glory by glory that we are being changed. None of us are who we will be, but we're in this process. And so as we're defining what is right, I want to push us a little bit to not define what is right, how we should act, how we should react by the news channel that you watch. As a Christian, I I get a really bad taste in my mouth when I see reactions that I see on the news. Both of them, if you're asking which one, both of them. Not very Christ-like. But yet, some of us are so stuck in this rut that we define what is right, how to be Christ-like, is really being defined by the news that's coming in our, into our homes. By political parties. And, and look, I said it earlier and some people got it right. I'll ask you all. I brought it on purpose. Does anybody know what this is? What? Yes, this year for voting, you, got, you didn't only get a sticker. You got that. But you also got a folder and a pen because of COVID. <laughs> they didn't want it back. And I'm, I'm say, I brought it in to say this. I voted. Okay? So don't email me about voting. I voted. However, don't let your political party tell you what's right. Let God and His Word tell you what's right. We are citizens of this world. We are people who should do things like vote, but we shouldn't let political parties dominate our thinking to the point that they're defining what is right and how we ought to react. That we've got to be able to to critique those things because they're sinful institutions. Also, I think we just let groups that we join ourselves to or people that we hang around to decide what is right versus God and His Word and looking more like His Son. And this all comes down to who are you trusting? Do you entrust yourself to God even to the point where you may stick out in your group You may be maligned in your group for doing what is right. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow 
man, who are you entrusting yourself to? The judgment of the world or to the judgment of God? And I'll say one final thing. It could get me in trouble and that's okay. In entrusting myself to God, I find great hope and comfort. A comfort that I don't find when looking around this world in some of the wells that I'm tempted to go to to find hope. There's a lot being made today about things that we should do or things we shouldn't do or the world's going to fall apart. And I'm telling you, the world's marred by sin. The world is falling apart. Entrust yourself to God and do what is right. Again, that's a whole other sermon. As Peter is writing us, as Peter is writing us, it's my prayer as we end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that this world is not our home. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us. We thank you for the joy that is ours now because your spirit indwells us and leads us and guides us and encourages us and directs us to this word that you have given us that is full of great hope because we know that this world isn't our home but your kingdom is help us to be your people help us to be a people that entrust ourselves to you and that we do what is right that we are salt and light in this culture not only in the way that we act but in the things that we proclaim many have said that these are difficult and trying days, and they are. But God, help us not to get caught. (laughs) Help us not to get caught by defining ourselves by anything other than being a people who follow your son. Even if that maligns us, or when that maligns us with the culture. God, we love you. And we entrust ourselves to you. And we can only do this because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.